Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And they told him to give her something to eat. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that today as we look into your word and your truth, God, that we'll be reminded um, again of your life and your death. And God, that today won't just be uh, just something we do because it's what's expected on Sunday morning from our families. But God, I pray that it'll be something that truly uh, is about us knowing you and making you known through the, um, our encounter with you today, God. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I, w- I want to remind you of something that's, that's super obvious, all right? We live in a dramatically broken world, a dramatically broken world. The evidence is all around us where we look. Um, I have been resisting for quite a few years now of wearing these things on Sunday morning that I have laying all around my house and in my car, in my office, in my book bag, because unfortunately, either they've started printing stuff a lot smaller on packages these days and in, in books, but, or I just I can't see anymore. And the beauty of preaching out of an iPad is I can make the text bigger, but at some point, you know, having only four or five words on my, my iPad page might become a problem, but I'm not there yet. But I, it, these are a reminder of the brokenness of our world. And if you're going through something very, very serious today, I don't mean to trivialize your struggle and, and, your, and the brokenness that you're dealing with right now. Because this seems minor compared to what you're going through, possibly. But it is a reminder, it's evidence of the fact that things are not getting better. Things are getting worse. Romans 8 talks about how that the world, the created world, groans for redemption. It's groaning for God to come and redeem, restore his original creation to what he intended it to be before it was wrecked by sin. And Paul even talks about in that passage how that we ourselves, our own bodies, we groan, we ache for the redemption because we realize through the evidence of a bad back or bad eyesight or uh, various things that happen in our lives that that this world is broken, that bad things are uh, happening all around us and in us. And when I was younger, I think I kind of downplayed a lot of the problems people have, honestly, by thinking, you know, those are first world problems. Those, those you know, what are we complaining for? We, at least we don't live in a place where, you know, we can barely get fresh water and we can eat. But I think as I've gotten older, I realize that the brokenness that we deal with, the, the cancers, the, the aging process, miscarriages, dealing with aging parents, financial struggles, they remind us 
of a real problem, the world that is broken, that is not in working the way God intended it. And even things that maybe aren't as um, noticeable to other people. Depressions, anxiety, panic attacks, um, exhaustion. These things that we deal with throughout our lives and throughout our days, these are real, real problems. And Christians are not immune to these struggles. Just because we know Jesus doesn't mean that we get a free pass on all the problems and struggles of life. And so in the middle of your story, where you're at right now, maybe you're trying to make sense of what's going on. Maybe you're asking questions and saying, why is this happening? And I found that many times when we try to come up with answers apart from Jesus and apart from the Word, the answer that we come up with often compound the problem, and the solutions that we come up with on our own actually bring about more pain, not less pain. And so maybe you're in the midst of something, and you're trying to find a human way out of this, something apart from God. I encourage you to listen today, to, to really hone in on God's Word and, and be in God's Word. That's one thing I think is so critical about corporate worship. That's so important about why we get together on a regular basis is to remind us of Jesus Christ, is to remind us of what really is important in life, is to keep our perspective on what is really going on in this world and why it's happening rather than just coming up with our own ideas based on how we feel at the moment or what that, that the news stations are telling us or what the latest philosophy is, is about. Um, there was a student way back in the day in my youth ministry who really, really loved Jesus. He really had a great relationship with God. He had a great set of parents. Uh, he went off to a Christian college, Cedarville uh, University, uh, really got a solid Christian education, but he was getting into journalism, into professional writing, and so he was accepted into a very prestigious college for his master's degree, but it was also a very, very liberal college. And some months after being at this, uh, at this educational um, uh, facility, at this, at this school, he uh, called me up and he said, I'm struggling and I'm losing faith. And he said, part of the deal is, you know, I'm just around people all the time who don't have faith. And, and all the stuff that they're saying and talking about, I've just removed myself from a community of believers who are reinforcing the things I know I believe. And he said, I'm struggling. And we begin to talk about the, the, how important it was for him to find Christian community, to find a church, to get him plugged in to a body of believers who will help him and encourage him. And so that's another reason why we come together in worship, we come together in community to remind ourselves, to help us understand that the struggles and the problems and the difficulties that we face are not the end. That God is, as, as Buzz said so well, he's using these things and he allows these things for his greater purpose. And so as we study the book of Mark, and specifically as we look at this passage today, I want you to take your dilemma, your problem, where you're at right now, and instead of trying to come up with the answers on your own to this situation, I hope that you will see there's so much application here in Scripture because of Jesus Christ, because of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, the God-man who actually walked on this earth, who actually dealt with the problems that we deal with and so much more. And Scripture says he can sympathize with us. He's able to come in with us in our weaknesses, in our struggle, and he loves us. And he wants to embrace us to embrace his story, to help us see that, that our story makes sense only because of his story. And he proved he was God by his power and his authority, and we've been seeing that week after week here in Mark. Uh, the last few weeks we've seen Jesus' power over nature, how that he calmed the storm. We saw his power over evil spirits last week, how he threw out the demons, and we've seen his power over illness, and today we're going to see even his power over Death, illness, and death. And so, verse 21 of chapter 5, we're going to pick up there. I'm going to move pretty quick, and so uh, just stay with me here and stay focused in because it's a long passage of Scripture. And so, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, if you were here last week, you know that Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to a Gentile area. There he had one mission. He encountered this man who had these evil spirits. He cast out the spirits. The guy wanted to come back with Jesus. Jesus said, nope, not time to come back with me. Uh, this is not your, your, your job to come back with me. Your job is to stay here and to spread the message of me. And so that was last week. And so Jesus comes back over to the other side. And as usual at this time in his ministry, a great crowd is gathered around him. And he's there beside the sea. And so we've just seen just one situation, one event after another. It's just this exhausting ministry that Jesus is involved in. 
And as we've said, he's all man and all God. And in his human side of him, he's tired. He's asleep on the boat. He gets exhausted. He gets, he, he gets to the point where the crowds are pressing in, and he needs space. He needs room. He says, put me out here on a boat here away from the crowds so I can do my mission, which is to teach and tell about the kingdom of God and prepare them for the cross. And so this is the kind of the situation that Jesus is facing again. Verse 22 And there came to him one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell on his face and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he says, one of the the rulers of the synagogues. Now, this guy isn't a priest. He's not an official uh, person uh, that's, uh, that's over the religious activities of the synagogue. He would be more comparable to what we would refer to as a deacon, somebody who's uh, doing a lot of the administrative work in the synagogue, but nevertheless, he has important standing in the community. He's recognized in, this, in the community as somebody who is important. He, he's uh, someone who has status in the religious circles, and so it's an extremely big risk for him to come to Jesus in this manner, to come and fall on his face before Jesus. And at this point, the religious establishment of the day They've turned on Jesus. They're against Jesus. They're plotting against Jesus, if you remember where we've talked over the last weeks. And so they're looking for opportunities here. And so for this guy, it's a great show of humility, and also it's a great show of courage that he comes and he falls down before Jesus. And he's got this hopeless case. And so he's begging for Jesus to step into his crisis and to do a miracle. Verse 24, and so it says, when Jesus, Jesus went with him, And so Jesus begins to walk with him to his home, and a great crowd is following, and he's thronged by all these people. So these people are just following along. So here Jesus is going about with this man to go and to heal his daughter. The people just continue to follow. They're wanting miracles. They're wanting Jesus to do incredible things. And this chaos is pressing in, is happening. In verse 25, there is a woman in the crowd, and she has this hemorrhage. She has this discharge of blood. Scripture says in verse 25, for 12 years, and who has suffered much under many physicians and has spent all that she had, and she's no better off, but actually she grew worse. And so during this time, during the first century, um, her, me- her medical condition was incurable. And often during these times, that the, the actual, the, what the, the physicians would have prescribed would have actually been more harmful than good for her. And so here she was, she had spent all her money, she was in, in a bad situation, and on top of that, she is considered by the law, by the religious establishment of the day, she's considered what's called ceremonially unclean. She's ceremonially unclean. What does that mean? That means she is unable to even go to the temple and worship. She's unable to go and offer sacrifices to God and to worship God. And you may ask yourself, why would that be the situation? Why would that be the case that here this woman who's down and out, she's about you know, as bad as you can get, she's probably single, she doesn't have any children, and she's just at, you know, she's the, at the worst of the worst, and then society says, you're unclean, stay away, keep your distance. And this is important. This is why it's so important that we understand the Old Testament, it's, underst- it's so important that we understand that the Bible has 66 books for a reason, that we don't cut out the left side of the Bible and leave it, but we understand how that it all points to Jesus Christ. And the law was to show the holiness of God. It was to point to God and show how holy that God is. And so these unclean people or these sinful people by nature, they can't approach God. They can't go to God. And it's a pointing to the fact that we need a permanent solution to our sin, that we need a Savior. And so the law and the prophets all point to Jesus Christ, and they show that God is holy. He's incredible. He's so incredible that you cannot even, as your physical element shows something and is symbolic of something deeper, which is your sinful condition and how this has separated you from a holy God. And while everyone in the Old Testament more than likely went through a period of ceremonially being unclean, this wasn't a unique condition. For this lady, this was what appeared to be a permanent condition because there was no medical solution to her problem. And so it points to Jesus, and she's been sick for 12 years, and, and she's in this situation where she's just so down and out. 
And so Jesus, remember, he's on his way to, um, to with, with, with Jairus. He's on his way to help this, his daughter. And so this lady now is intercepting him because she had, verse 27, she had heard reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, even if I touch his garments, I would be made well. And so this woman, she didn't ask for help. She didn't go up to Jesus face to face. She was a social outcast. I'm sure she didn't want to bring attention to herself. She may not even wanted Jesus to have any contact with her. Because truthfully, she may have not even have been supposed to be there with the group of people that she was with. And another thing, there was probably this superstition in her as well that during this time period that people thought that someone who was a great man or a healer or a great teacher, that possibly if you just even touch their garment, touch their clothing, you could be made whole. And so she possibly was responding at least somewhat to that superstition. But look what happens in verse 29. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. Immediately, immediately her condition, her blood clots, it dries up, and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. It's instant, instantaneous. It's, It's complete she touches him, this condition that's been going on for 12 years, and all of a sudden, she felt normal for the first time. But Jesus, verse 30, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out for him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, Who touched, who touched me? Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But yet Jesus, what's he doing? He's looking around to see who had done it. Who had touched his garments. And I'm sure at this point, I can't help but wonder if the disciples didn't get frustrated that Jesus was delaying, right? You got this important guy in the community of status. He's somebody, you know, of worth according to their social scene of the day. And, and Jesus is going, but Jesus pauses and he looks around and he says, Who's, Who touched me? They're like, Jesus, come on. I mean, like, really? There's like so many people around here. You're, you're worried about who touched you? But obviously Jesus knew something greater was going on. But they're, they're fr- you can feel the frustration in their, their voice. And Jesus is delaying. He's killing time by looking around, asking who touched him. So he stopped what he was doing. And he is going to reach out and minister to this social outcast. And so... I think it's worth pausing here for a second because this may be a little confusing to some people that Jesus would say, who touched me? Who touched me? Because Jesus, being all God and all man, in his incarnation, when he came to earth as a man, when God came to earth, did he leave aside all of his God powers and his omniscience? Did he forget the fact that he knew everything or he all of a sudden became limited in his knowledge? Well, I think it's important theologically to understand this point that when he looked around and said, who did this? He wasn't saying, I don't know, that I'm incapable of knowing the answer to this question. Jesus retained all of his deity, all of his godliness when he was on this earth. In fact, time and again throughout his ministry, he baffled people by saying, I know what you're thinking, or he's predicting what's coming up in the future. So there's clear examples of the fact that Jesus knew these things. And in fact, John chapter 16, verse 30, these same disciples who Jesus is asking, who touched me? And they're responding negatively. The same disciples respond in John 16, 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. So Jesus, again and again, had displayed his ability to know all things, all-knowing. And so Jesus voluntarily, at times, surrendered the independent use of his divine attributes. He independently surrendered the use of his divine attributes. These divine attributes were always with him. They were always with him. He simply chose not to use them apart from the will of the Father. So apart from God's will, he chose voluntarily and independently not to use those at times. So just like when Jesus was on the cross, could he have just said, deliver me? Could he have said, angels, come and rescue me? Absolutely. But he chose to stay there in the same way that he voluntarily 
chose in this situation and other situations to not always reveal his ability to know all things. And so I know that may be a little confusing, but it's important to understand that. And it's important to grasp that Jesus all God and he was all man. And nobody gets a handle on that completely. Nobody in this church, I can assure you, if you're sitting there and you're a little confused, nobody can perfectly explain how something can be 100% one thing and 100% another thing. Right? You can get like 90% and 10%. We can get that, but we can't get, get the idea. We can't wrap our minds around that. It's impossible for us to truly, truly understand that or concepts like the Trinity, three and one, one God, three persons. But it's important that we continue our learning to understand and know because there's a lot of false religions, a lot of people who will try to question you or push you or convince you of something else. And it's easy to get misled if you don't understand and know the Scriptures and really study the Scriptures. So I encourage you to do that and to continue to look into those type of things and allow those things to whet your appetite to just get in and study more. So Jesus, he's looking around because he wants her, in this case, he wants her to come forward. And I'm sure when he's looking around, he's scoping out the, the, the crowd, right? You're, you've been there, right? Maybe back in school when you did something and the teacher said, who, who, who did that? And she looks around and you think she's just looking right at you because she knows it was you that made that noise. When I coached soccer, I love it when kids and even high school students, they would, if, they, if they accidentally handballed the ball, if they touched it with their hands, I would always say, keep playing. Don't act guilty. But what they do, they'd be you know, like this, and then the ref, if he didn't see it, like he called it at that point, because we, we're paranoid, we think, you know, we drop by the cop on the, on the road radaring, and we're like, oh, he's got me, and we act guilty, right? We hit the brakes and slow down, because we, we think, you know, we're busted. And that's, a, I'm sure, that feeling that we get in those situations, that woman had that times 100, right? I mean, here she was, she had done something, this thing, she was unclean, shouldn't even been there, here she's touching Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's looking around like, who did it? Who did it? And she's nervous. Look, it says, verse 33, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You may miss this just by a cursory reading of this passage, but I love how these Two stories are interweaved together, and some of their common themes are highlighted. You have a desperate father, this community leader with status, and he appeals to Jesus on behalf of his dying daughter. And you have this poor, desolate, impure woman who's equally desperate, ends up being affirmed by Jesus as daughter. He says, daughter, this outcast to society, this person unclean by society, and Jesus says, daughter, you're my daughter. And all I love about this, and just practical application for this, as the sons and daughters of God, because of Jesus Christ, that our standing, that our worth before God is not based upon anything that we do. It's not based on how many church services we attend, how many K-groups we were at last, last semester. It's not based on how many mornings you successfully got up and read your Bible. You're Status before God is not based upon those things. Sure, God wants all those things from you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to, to bask in his presence so you can be contagious with your life to this world. And it happens through that sanctification, becoming more like Jesus by being with Jesus. But if you're a believer, those things don't earn God's approval or status. We were talking to some people yesterday about how that when you get involved in a dating relationship, oftentimes the person is so affected by the parents that they were brought up with and the situations that they grew up in and maybe a, a, a bad father who you could never do enough to please and make happy or a father who abandoned you and how these things kind of shift us and make us think of even our relation with God in a very similar way. And so we have this earning mentality it says, I got to earn God's approval. And you walk around defeated all the time because you feel like you never measure up. I can never quite get it together. If these kids are around me all the time, if it wasn't for the kids, you know, I could spend more time with God. I could be more devoted. Yet, And so we, we feel like such a failure time and again. And it's just this revolving door of just failure of confession, failure of confession. 
And I think Jesus wants to speak over us the way that he spoke over this impure, poor, desolate woman, daughter, son. Your worth, your value is not based upon what you have done or what you do. Your worth and your value is based upon Jesus and who he is. And our righteousness is solely and completely based upon the cross of Christ. And that's the fact that the devil doesn't want you to hear, doesn't want you to know. And he wants to keep you in this earning mentality. If I can just earn it, if I can just make it in, if I can be good enough, then God will be happy with me. He'll accept me. And that's why we have the cross, because the cross says, and the Old Testament law and the prophets say, you can't measure up. You can't live up to the holiness of God. All have sinned and fallen so short of the glory of God. But Jesus came, but the cross, but his sacrifice changes everything. And so if you're feeling terrible this morning, maybe yesterday was a horrible, awful day for you. Maybe you just found yourself just frustrated, irritated, depressed, and angry at God. Or maybe yesterday was the best day ever, right? You got rain. That's awesome, right, Trey? Rain, amen? Rain came on the crops. We had a, you had a day of relaxation, maybe family. And you feel like, man, God loves me. The truth is, if you're in Christ, I don't care if you're here or here. God's love is the same. His acceptance is the same because it's based upon what Jesus did not based upon what you do. And maybe a few of you are thinking, well, I know this stuff. That's why we gather, to hear it again and again, because our default of our flesh, everything about the world says, perform, do the dance to earn the hugs, please your boss so you can get the raise, the promotion, don't do what you're supposed to do, you get fired. And and that's the mentality, a performance mentality that's all around us. That's the world we live in. And... Scripture, the gospel is, you can't do enough. You didn't do enough. You'll never do enough. But Jesus did. And so he looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the truth is for you. Your faith has made you well. Your faith, which God gives you, which God gave you. Remember your day of salvation. God gave you the faith to put your faith in Jesus Christ and believe. And your faith made you well before God. So awesome. I do want to approach some, one other theological theme I think is important because we'll see this again and again throughout the book of Mark. Because a lot of people look at this, this idea of healing and say, if I just have enough faith, it doesn't mean God will, will always heal me. So if I just, if I just believe enough, then, then God will always take care of my infirmities, my problems, my struggles that I'm dealing with. Well, a couple of things before I answer that question. Let me affirm a few things that are very true in Scripture that are non-negotiable. The first is that God answers prayer. God answer prayer, answers prayer. I don't know. It's kind of like the God being Jesus being all God and all man. I can't explain to you how our prayers move the heart of God. But just like God has a sovereign will, your prayers and the answer to those prayers are part of His sovereign will that takes place and happens. And so some really very real things that happen because you pray would not happen if you did not pray. I don't get that. I understand that. But the truth of the scripture is that, that prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. And God heals. We've seen it. There are situations right here in this church where you have received healing from God that maybe the doctors scratched their head and said, that's beyond me how that happened. Maybe your healing was like Tori's mom. It was for a season that she got a year extra that wasn't really expected, and then she passed away. Maybe it's like uh, Elizabeth who came and was anointed with oil by the elders, as James prescribes. We prayed over her, and praise God, right now, her diagnosis doesn't look like it was anywhere near what doctors had suggested, what it was going to be for her. In fact, there, she seems to be doing well, is that right? Uh, and, and, and doing great. She's here today. And so God heals. We follow what God says. Pray. Pray for the sick. Anoint with oil. Not because there's something supernatural in that oil, but it's a prayer of faith, and it's a humbling yourself before God. 
But here's one thing that just breaks my heart as a pastor is to see many desperate and hurting people being led astray by preachers who preach falsely on this matter. I think some just bad theology, just a bad understanding of the Bible, but some people are just straight-out con artists. Straight-out con artists. I saw a commercial last summer when we were at Mexico Beach of a guy who was literally selling holy water that would just take care of all your problems. I think that guy's been arrested several times, and there's all kinds of bad stuff, but he continues to be on the air promoting this false religion, this fake stuff. And there's glaring differences between what these false teachers claim and what Jesus and the apostles did. As we saw with Jesus and this woman, as we see over and over again through the Gospels and through Acts, when Jesus and the apostles healed people with a word or with a touch, it was total. It was complete. It was instantaneous. They were healed. They got out. They walked away. And it was organic diseases. It was, it was things like um, blindness or paralysis. It wasn't TMJ or a bad back or something like that, that so many of, uh, of the faith healers today, you know, they can heal that stuff. But where's the, where, why won't they stand up and say, let me show you some real healing there? And, and so there's so much deceit in this. And so you have these people who are, who are coming desperate, looking for answers, looking for help. And what are they, they're beat down even worse because they're told, well, if you'd have had more faith, then you would have been healed. If, if you just believe more, and so not only do they walk away with their problem they came with, but now they walk away with the guilt like, I can never measure up to God. I can never get to God because I just don't, I don't believe enough. And so this faith healing, the way that this is approached, that if, that if you just believe enough, you can force God to do your will. You can force him to, to do these things. That is false teaching. It's false teaching. And it gives burden after burden to other people that if you just had enough faith, then God would have healed you. Pastor Sam, Sam Storms has some really helpful stuff on this, and I took and adapted it. And I'm going to share these with you, and they're on your bulletin because I think they're important. I think you should write these down, or on the, and they're in the app as well. First, we must recognize that belief or faith is not a case of forcing ourselves to believe what we really do not believe. Belief or faith is not the case of forcing ourselves to believe what we really don't believe. So it's not closing our eyes, putting our hands over our ears and saying, la, 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 you know, I, 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 you know, and trying to some way convince yourself that you will have enough faith and apart from all other evidence, you're not going to hear it. No, 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 don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. I believe, I believe, I believe. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's not faith. That's spiritual pretending. And so I encourage you not to buy into that. That's make-believe. That's superstitious. It's not biblical faith. Second thing that's true about our faith, we are responsible to take steps which facilitate the deepening of our faith in our hearts. We are called to take steps. How do we do that? Seeing the holiness of God. Reading, studying, meditating on Scripture to know God, to know His character, to know His truth. Focusing on the gospel. Seeing God's past faithfulness, how he's been faithful. And even the things that you prayed for that did not work out the way that you hoped they would work out, how God's hand was still in that as you look back and see. The next thing, faith is not the sole condition for answered prayer. Faith is not the sole condition for answered prayer. Let me tell you some other conditions that are listed in Scripture. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, we must pray according to the will of God. And that's why Jesus taught us, your will, God, not our will. So we pray, we submit to the will of God. What that may look like is to say, God, I really, really desire healing for my back. It's, it, God, my back, it, it hurts and it slows me down from doing ministry the way I want to do it. I, I can't have the joy that I should have. I feel like I should have. But God, I trust you. I trust your will that even with a bad back, maybe your purpose will be evident to me today for this. And so, God, while I ask for healing from my limited scope, I trust your sovereign will in this matter. The second thing, we must remove our selfish agenda, which kind of goes along with that. Romans or James 4, 3, he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So it's pure selfishness. It's pure greed a lot of times, the things that we ask 
if we really pay attention. It's really not kingdom-centered prayers. It's our betterment, our health, our wealth, our prosperity. The third thing may surprise you here. The way a husband treats his wife may interfere with his prayer life. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since she since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You get that? Wow. He says, men, the way you lead and the way you love your wives could hinder your prayers. And I don't want to load too much into the text that's not being said here, but I can't help but to think, guys, that this has some application to our spiritual leadership here. Because he's not talking about women being weaker in the, in the point of, you know, women just don't measure up to men. We're just so much better than women. Men are the spiritual leaders of the home. That's the way God ordered it. And so if we aren't loving our wives the way we should and living and understanding to our wives by leading them, your prayers won't be answered because you're not leading in the way that you should lead at home. And there's a lot more of that verse, but I really feel like that's, that is one application that we could really take and run with, guys. The next one, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, we must forgive those who have sinned against us. Jesus said, look, if you want forgiveness from the Father, you need to have your heart in a condition of forgiveness of others. I mean, who are you to ask for forgiveness when you're holding this bitterness and anger in your heart? Sure, our forgiveness as Christians post-cross is we're forgiven completely, But this is about our relationship with God and and knowing God and having a relationship with him that how can you say you're in tune with God, that you know God when you're harboring this anger and this bitterness against other people. So don't go seeking God for forgiveness until you let go or at least admit humbly to God that you struggle with this. And and sure, forgiveness is is an over and over again process. I mean, oftentimes we see that person, all those feelings come back again for what they did to us, how they wronged us. And we can say, well, I'm letting them off the hook. I'm letting them go on this. But we may do this again and again and again. But it's a humility that we, we carry around with us that we say, you know, God, you forgave me so much. I'm forgiving them. I'm not holding that against them. I'm not treating them the way that they deserve to be treated possibly because you didn't treat me the way that I deserved. And so no amount of faith forces God's hand that is contrary to our welfare. Back to Romans chapter 8. All things work together for the good of those who love him. So God's working all things for the good of those who love him. And so your faith isn't going to change that. Because as I said, how many times in your own life, think about a time when you were so persuaded that this thing had to happen or that relationship had to come to fruition or this job or this situation had to occur or your life was over as you know it. And it didn't happen even though you prayed and you believed and you had faith and it didn't happen. But you look back now and you say, glad that didn't happen, right? I'm glad that didn't work out the way that I prayed. God, you know more than me. You're smarter than I am. So my point is simply that it is irresponsible and insensitive to suggest, based on this passage, that if someone doesn't receive from God what they ask for, it's because they are at fault in failing to have enough faith. I think that's critically important. So let's go back to our text, verse 35. So Jesus is walking. The woman intercepts. He stops. He pauses. And he delays. A messenger comes. While he's still speaking to the woman, there comes this rule, somebody from the ruler's house. And he says to Jairus, he says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's too late. And think about what would have crossed through this man's mind, just like it would have yours. You would have thought, well, you know, had this woman not interfered, we probably would have made it in time. I just saw what Jesus did. I know he has the power, but, you know, even Jesus, I mean, he's pretty powerful, but I'm not sure he can raise somebody from the dead. That's not possible. So, you know, not much hope here. But look, Jesus knows. He, He understands what this guy's feeling. Verse 36 Overhearing what was said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Don't fear, only believe. He's saying to the guy, he's saying, Look, I'm doing a work here. What I'm doing is my agenda. I want you to have peace. I want you to just rest. I'm not going to be hurried. I'm not going to be dictated to. 
I'm on my timetable. I'm doing what I'm doing. And so he says this guy, faith, have faith, believe. So if faith isn't all those things that I listed out there, what is faith? What, what does it mean? Because Scripture clearly tells us to not walk by sight. We're not to walk by what we just see, but we're to walk by faith. So if those things aren't true, then what is walking by faith? What does that mean? How do you practically leave this church, go off to lunch today, and you live by faith? Because that's what we're told to do in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Walk by faith, not by sight. I come to second I like to go to 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. There's many verses we could point to in Scripture that talks about God's will and, and living by faith and what he expects from us, but I love these two verses. Look at these verses with me. They'll be on the screen. Uh, Paul writes, To this end we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every for I'm sorry, for good and uh, for good and every work of faith by his power. Let me read that again. To this end, we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Why? So that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you track with what that passage is saying? He's saying that living by faith means trusting God will give you everything you need to glorify Jesus in every circumstance, in every situation, because of the grace of the gospel and his plan of redemption. He gives you everything you need in that situation to fulfill the calling that God has put on your life. That's a perspective you don't hear from faith healers. That's what they, you don't hear that from health, wealth, and prosperity people because why? It's much more marketable to say that this is all about you and it's all about me and God's a genie in the bottle and if I just rub it right and say the right things and all my wishes come true and life is easy and it's just going to be easy street for me following Jesus and doing all the things that, that I, I need to do in my life. It's the total opposite. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. If anybody, Paul says, if you're going to, all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They will suffer persecution. So how does your theology handle if you think that it's all about you and it's about your joy and your entertainment, your health, your wealth, your ease, your success? If your theology is all about that, then what happens when God's will really hits you, which is to suffer for my cause, to take up my cross, and it happens, it hits you. You get resistance from friends, from people at school. You get resistance from your neighbors, others, and all of a sudden, it's not easy anymore. It's hard, and it's not popular. How do you respond to that? You respond to that, you say, God, I thank you through Jesus that you give me everything I need in this situation. You give me the grace to fulfill your will, every good work. There's always going to be skeptics. Look at verse 37 through 40. Jesus said, or says, He, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. They were heartbroken also possibly at this time. This is kind of crazy for us to think about, but there was like professional mourners. Like you hired people to come in and mourn. You felt, I guess, additional compassion because other people were crying and wailing there with you. Misery loves company, right? And so these people were there. They're, they're, they're acting this way. They're, they're really upset as can be expected. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at Jesus, right? They laughed at Jesus. If they can laugh at Jesus, they're for sure going to laugh at you and I, right? True story. I went to someone's place of work. I don't really need to say true story. All my stories are true, okay? So I don't need to preface it with that, right? I want you to believe me, okay? I'm not making stuff up here. But I went to somebody's place of work to give them some really bad information. I was asked to deliver that information and I, and I delivered the information. As you can imagine, the person just broke down. And, and I said, um, let's pray. Let's pray. And the, per, the co-worker that was in the office actually laughed. Ha! Huh. 
like that laughed about the situation. As if prayer, that's a stupid waste of time. You know, why are you doing that for? Sometimes we will have things happen that way. We can, be, we can expect it. But look what happened. But he put them all outside. Get out of here. Little you people who quickly turn from wailing and mourning to all of a sudden you're laughing now, right? You, you need to go outside the house. And he came into her and he spoke in um, Arabic, which I think is pretty awesome because what does this show that here Mark is writing down whose account of, of this, whose account is this? Peter's. It's Peter's. And Peter remembers this specifically enough that he actually remembers the Aramaic that Jesus said, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, I say to you, arise. That literally translated means little lamb. Rise up, little lamb. Again, just showed the tenderness of Jesus. He cared about this little girl, even though he's on this life-altering mission. In verse 42, immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age, and they were amazed. I'm sorry, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that they should, that no one should know this, and they told them to give her something to eat. Again, right? Jesus is so compassionate. Give this girl something to eat, right? She's hungry. She's struggling. You know, she's hungry. She needs something, but he, rose her, he raised her from the dead. How amazing, how awesome. And the parents, the disciples, overcome with amazement. Overcome with amazement. As we wrap up this passage today, I want to ask you honestly, and ask myself this honestly, what would it take for you to become overwhelmed with amazement from Jesus? What would that look like, and what would happen in your life? What would be different about your life if you just were overwhelmed with Jesus? You know, I think when we really, you know, force ourselves to remember, especially as we get older, that death is inevitable, we're not permanent on this planet, then obviously eternal life becomes much sweeter and the hope that we have in Christ. But unfortunately, too many people wait until they're well up in age before they get serious about their relationship with Christ. And by then, you have all these wasted years where Jesus' amazement, his, his, just who he is, his person, the gospel, can radically change our lives. And, it, and I just fall back again and again to you've got to have a routine. I know routine oftentimes sounds like a horrible word to people, but a routine is so important if you're going to be in God's word on a regular basis. If you just... You know, these guys who came back from camp, so awesome to see so many kids there in the pool getting baptized. And maybe you can remember when you were that age and you came back from camp. I remember when Buzz and, and Chip used to go to camp with me, um, and, and they, they would, you know, it, it was crazy. Buzz and Chip were so dignified at camp, they were like, ah, going crazy, right? Camp has this effect on you. They'll deny that, I'm sure, right? But it's true. I was there. I know it's true. Um, uh, they used to be my chaperones during camp. And, and you come back, and you're so pumped, and you're so excited, and you're ready for about two days to take on the world and just change the world for Jesus. But the reality hits about day three, and then by two weeks later, you're right back into old patterns. That's why you need a routine. You need to, to, to set time where you're really, truly going to be in God's Word if you're going to be successful at it, because all the hope and wishful thinking and desire in the world won't make it happen unless you organize your life in a way where you say, Jesus, I prioritize you, not just because I want you to get me to heaven, but I prioritize you because I want to live this life to bring heaven, bring you to this world. This world. And I need to be in your presence. I need to know you. I need to commit to community. I need to commit to real life, true, intrinsic, um, I mean, true, invasive community where people will truly push me. And back to the illustration about the guy in my youth group who distanced himself from community. He understood, you know, you can't do it if you're, all you're hearing is the negative voices and the false philosophies and all the things that are pulling you away from Jesus. You need community. I've showed this little graph, this little chart uh, uh, several times. And just to remind you, that's kind of the application of this. We have to hear the word. We have to know the word. We have to apply the word, act on the word. And we, go, we get into community with other believers, real community, true community, 
people who are going to ask us how we're doing, how's our marriage, pray for your situation at work, pray for those in your life who are hurting, pray for your anxiety or your depression, pray for the cancer as you be there for you when you're dealing with parents who are, are struggling and can't even get from point A to point B anymore. You need friends to rally around you. And that happens because they love you because of the gospel. They love you because of Jesus Christ. And so, walk by faith, not by sight. It's not a genie in the bottle to get you what you want. It's a way to live for Jesus in his glory, in his honor, not for your glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just uh, amazing the documentation that was written down through eyewitness accounts of your life. And this isn't hocus-pocus fairy tales that we're reading today. It's things that actually happened, and it's truth, and it's real. And God, may we build our lives upon you and upon our faith in you, believing and trusting that you do work all things. To, good, to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that you're working all things for your glory. And you're, you're going to come again. You're going to restore creation to the way that it was intended. You're going to give us a glorified body that we don't have to worry about back pain. We don't have to worry about paralysis. We don't have to worry what that MRI is going to show tomorrow. That we can trust that you are redeeming your creation. You're redeeming those who know you and love you. And God, I pray that we'll rest our faith and trust in you. And you alone, in Jesus' name.